0: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Transmission Interrupted. When we first recorded this podcast, we talked about Deltacron and why it was likely due to laboratory contamination rather than a recombination of Delta and Omicron variants. Between recording the podcast and getting it to your ears, this actual recombination occurred. So at the end of the podcast, we'll catch up with our guests and check in on the news. Thanks for joining us for Flu Rona and the Future of Respiratory Virus Season.
1: This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted. My name is Lauren Sauer, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and I'm the director of the Special Pathogens Research Network, which is the research arm of NITEC. For those of you not familiar with NETEC, our mission is to set the gold standard for special pathogen preparedness and response across the health system in the United States, with the goals of driving best practices, closing knowledge gaps, and developing innovative resources. NETEC works alongside and in cooperation with the CDC and is funded by ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. On today's episode, we have two very special guests. Dr. Jared Evans is a virologist and infectious disease expert at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, and Dr. Anish Mehta is a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Emory School of Medicine and one of our fearless NETEC PIs. Thank you both so much for joining us. Jared, Anish, do you wanna tell us a little bit about yourselves? We'll start with Jared.
2: Yes, I'm Jared Evans. I'm a senior research scientist at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. I'm a molecular virologist by training, and I work in the research and exploratory development department here at the Applied Physics Lab. My research focuses on viral emergence from different scales with respect to the molecular level all the way up to the population genomics level. We marry in new engineering capabilities, including microfluidic droplet technologies and next-generation sequencing in order to develop new modalities in combating emerging pathogens.
0: Thanks so much. And Anish?
1: Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me. My name is Anish Mehta. I am a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at Emory University in Atlanta, where I specialize in the care of transplant and oncology patients. I also have the pleasure of collaborating with wonderful scientists on uh, antiviral research and vaccines against viruses. I also have the honor of being one of the co-principal investigators of netech and leading this wonderful group of people as we elevate the level of preparedness for our healthcare systems and research infrastructures across the country for this pandemic and the next one.
0: Thanks both so much for joining us. I can't think of two better experts to talk a little bit about flu, Rona, and Deltacron and all of these combinations of viruses and variants. All the things we've been talking about over the last year as we sit in flu season and continue to deal with the challenges that the COVID-19 pandemic creates. So maybe we'll start with a very basic question that I think is still a new concept to a lot of us. What exactly does it mean to be a variant? And how is a variant different than just a virus? Maybe I'll hand this one off to you, Jared, first.
2: So it's a really good question, and a lot of people have been asking that. A virus is basically a parasite. It's a bit of nucleic acid or genetic material surrounded by a protein shell and sometimes a little bit of fat. In the example of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID, it's the last. It's a piece of RNA or genetic material surrounded by a protein shell and a little bit of an, uh, a lipid layer, a fat layer. And viruses can be grouped based on these types of characteristics. What type of genetic material they have, what type of structural material they have. And sometimes they're named after the disease they cause, like hepatitis viruses. One of the other things that viruses do, especially viruses like COVID and and flu, is they all mutate. And the more susceptible hosts there are, there's no immunity. And so they can move through these populations and replicate and make more of themselves. And, And they're relatively error prone, so you can start to get mutations. SARS-CoV-2 is a virus, COVID-19 is the disease, and the original virus genome, or the genetic material, was sequenced and, and characterized very early on. And as it spread and ran into different populations with different levels of immunity, mutations started to show up in that genetic material. And that's what a variant is. It's a mutated version of the original. And so you can base different variants back to its ancestor and you can bin these as variants of concern, variants of interest, things like that. And these can be based on shared attributes such as clinical outcomes.
0: Is a variant always worse than the original virus?
2: No. Actually, a lot of times viruses, as they get into populations and adapt to be able to survive in that population, they actually become weaker. That's not always the case, but if there is enough immunity, viruses will want to, to stick around. And so they'll find mechanisms where they can kind of coexist with the population that it wants to affect, infect and find mutations that are not neutralized by immunity or taken out of their own population. But also they don't want to really kill their host too fast because then they can't make more of themselves. So oftentimes they become, they become uh, a little uh, attenuated or a little weaker. But again, it's not always the case.
0: You mentioned that the variants are found through sequencing and characterization. Can you tell us a little bit about what a sequence is? I think we've all worked with sequencing data for a long time, but that's almost always been to conduct science. And, and this is the first time we're really seeing the public having regular conversations, engaging with sequencing data. Can you explain a little more about what exactly a sequence is?
2: Yeah. So sequence at its core is the physical representation of the genetic code of an organism and for nucleic acid bases, which there are four of them. And so what you're able to do is put them in order of what the genetic code is and be able to read it almost like an alphabet. And then when you match three of those bases together, that is an amino acid and you have this kind of hierarchy of nucleic acid to protein sequence. And so you're able to obtain these sequences through a number of different methods that are globally referred to as sequencing or next-generation sequencing.
0: So now, Anish, can you tell me a little bit about how we use sequencing data? I know all of us on this call have been very familiar with using sequencing data for flu science, but we're seeing sequencing data used to make operational decisions. Can you use sequencing data to make clinical decisions?
1: Lauren, this is a wonderful question. In, In an area that's evolving as we speak, Traditionally, there have been very rare circumstances where we've used sequencing data to guide clinical care for treatment of viruses. The most ready example of where we do would be with HIV, where we're able to sequence the virus and help us understand which combinations of antiviral medication would likely work best for the virus that's in that patient. Outside that and a few other examples, though, we don't have the tools readily available for clinicians to use sequencing to make clinical decisions. This may be an area that will grow in the future and help us decide what's the best therapy for patients, what sort of isolation they may need, if there are different strains or variants that can be transmitted in different ways. But at this point in time, sequencing primarily is in the area of basic science research or translational science research, where the samples are evaluated by sequencing mechanisms and we get data weeks to months down the road. And that's all combined together to really understand the science more. More recently, our epidemiologic scientists have been collaborating with sequencing scientists, our virologists, to really try to understand transmission by using sequencing techniques to understand the spread in our community using these sequencing techniques. And this has been really helpful for understanding where things are moving as far as viral outbreaks go. This is true for flu virus, this is true for coronavirus and other viruses. And what we really hope to see in the future is more investment and more ready availability of sequencing data for clinicians and healthcare systems to guide not only how they care for the patients, but what resources they need to make sure are in place. Some sequencing data may tell us that these viral infections are more likely to be outpatient infections than inpatient infections and so we can focus resources there, or we get information that tells us we're seeing spread of a virus that has a sequence that would indicate there's going to be more severe disease so we need to have more ventilators ready. We need to have more staff ready in our ICU. We're just not there yet, but we hope that COVID can be used as an example for why we need this investment for our country and the entire world moving forward.
0: It seems like sequencing data has become a lot more sensitive, which allows for a lot more rapid operational decision making. Is this the case when we talk about the detection of new variants or how we see some of the variants popping up and turning into variants of concern or possibly variants of interest. How do we use the sequencing data to make those determinations?
2: The sequencing data is shared. There's been over 7 million COVID sequences uploaded to Casade and uh, GenBank. And this is an incredible amount of sequences. We're able to analyze the data, be able to compare them and group them. And so when you have different variants, If they're closely related enough, they're grouped into something referred to as a lineage. And that's a relational thing between different variants, as well as the variants relationship back to the ancestral or original virus. And so you're able to look at how the virus emerges, where it emerges, when it emerges, and be able to understand the transmission pathways with the roadblocks in place or the rules in place like masking, social distancing, and different public health measures that were taken. And did the variant disappear? Did it get worse? And that type of information is able to be able to look across the different variants that emerge and be able to group them in a way that they're able to be useful for epidemiological studies.
0: So is this what happened with Deltacron? It seemed like that was a conversation around a merged variant that just emerged and then disappeared. Or did something else happen there?
2: So. The case of Deltacron is how people are referring to it, is, is actually a case that is contamination. And so the reason why it became an issue was coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-2 are really interesting when it comes to RNA viruses or related pathogens, because they exhibit something called intergenome recombination. That means if there are two molecules from two different SARS-CoV variants, they might be able to switch different pieces and swap parts and be able to create a potentially new variant, which may turn into a lineage if it, if it takes hold. So when the researchers sequenced a number of clinical samples and they found something that looked like an, a combination of Delta and Omicron variants, they thought this was true recombination between two lineages. It turned out that it wasn't the super variant that they thought it was. And the reason that it was of great concern was because there was the increased transmissibility of Omicron. It could infect a lot more people a lot faster and had the increased pathogenicity of Deltacron or or, sorry of Delta virus. And so if you put those two together, you can see that that might be a cause for great concern. And to go back to Anisha's point, might cause people to make decisions like increase ventilators or make some public health decisions. The issue was that once the data was uploaded into these public repositories, GISAID and, and GenBank, Other researchers were able to take a look at this information and do a little bit of a deeper dive into it. And it appeared that it was contamination. The contamination isn't a slight on the lab that did this. It's actually quite common. It's just oftentimes the contamination is missed. It's not as critiqued as these particular sequences were because of the nature of COVID. But the issue comes that next generation sequencing or the tools we use now, the methods we use now are extremely powerful and sensitive. So if there's just a little bit of one type of genetic material, it could overwhelm other things that are actually in the sample. And so this caused a lot of confusion, a lot of concern, and a lot of debate. And that's why it was so highly looked into by other researchers.
0: So when you say contamination and you say it's not necessarily a bad thing, do you mean that the laboratory itself was contaminated or there were bits of the genetic material from Delta in an Omicron sequence or vice versa?
2: So what I mean by contamination is, if a lab is processing samples that contain Omicron and other samples completely separate that contain Delta, there might be cross-contamination just because things get in the air, things are on surfaces. And then the issue here was based on the fact that primers, which are little pieces of DNA that are necessary for sequencing, preferentially bound to Omicron sequences. And so small amounts of Omicron, which might have been missed if the primers bound to Delta very well, were actually overamplified. And so it looked like both of the Delta and Omicron were in a sample, but it was just carryover or small, small amounts of Omicron that were in, in those sequencing reactions.
0: I'll hand this question over to Anish. Knowing that this was a potential case of contamination, but also that it wasn't found out till later, Could this impact public health or healthcare activities?
1: Uh, that's a great question, Lauren. And and definitely when we see events like this, as Jared just described, they can have an impact on what's going on in the community, what's going on in healthcare systems in multiple ways. And it really underscores what Jared was talking about. The need to have scrutiny, good scientific evaluation of any data that's coming out and make sure that we've really looked at it for all angles. So sometimes when we get these early pieces of data, we can see either over-optimism or over-pessimism based on that data coming out. We get very concerned sometimes when we see this, that there's something new that's gonna dramatically impact what we do, and sometimes that leads to overreaction. And that's why we have to temper sort of our reaction to these new pieces of data until they can be fully evaluated and make sure that we, again, use all the data we have available to make decisions, not only for our patients, but for our healthcare systems and our community.
0: So I want to switch gears a little bit. This conversation has me thinking about another portmanteau that we've seen a lot in the news lately. People have been talking a lot about flu-rona which is a combination of flu and COVID that we're seeing being reported in our hospitals, in our emergency departments. Jared, can you tell me about flu-rona? Is it possible for two viruses to actually merge?
2: So that's a, that's a really good question. And to pull the thread a little bit on what Anish was saying is, this was another example of where he got into the popular press, similar to Deltacron, and there started to be a, a let's say a, a public outcry for, or towards whether the measures we're taking will work. You know, is there going to be, is our vaccine gonna still work? Is the flu vaccine gonna work this year? I know that's not a, the original question, but the, the answer to can two different viruses merge? The basic answer is yes. However, those viruses need to be extremely closely related. So two flu viruses can merge, that's actually very common. And as I said before, recombination can occur in coronaviruses, but it's not going to happen between flu and coronavirus. They're two very, very different viruses. Their genetic material doesn't even look the same. A flu virus is made up of eight pieces of genetic material, whereas coronavirus is made up of one very long piece of genetic material. And the issue that started to come out there was that fluorona was actually a clinical description, but it was taken and turned into, is this two viruses that are turning into one super virus in a number of different popular press articles? The clinical community and scientific community knew it was two viruses that were co-infecting a person and causing perhaps more severe disease, more severe symptoms. But again, those haven't been extremely well-defined because co-infection with flu and SARS-CoV-2 is actually quite rare, very rare. So to kind of circle back to the beginning, these two viruses can infect the person at the same time, they just rarely do, but they are not going to merge to make a super virus of any kind.
0: So related to that, maybe I'll hand this one over to Anish. Do you think the rarity of co-infection with flu and coronavirus is because we've seen so much less flu in the community in the past two years since we have had all these other activities around masking and, and social distancing that has limited flu spread?
1: So, Lauren, I just wanted to follow up on what Jared just said, and then I'll get into the, that answer. So just following up on what Jerry just said, the whole way that the flu-Rona sort of moniker got out there was was very interesting, right? It was a clinical observation of two different viruses that could potentially be seen in, in an individual patient and also just two circulating infections in our community. What that underscored for me is, and I think COVID has done this for us in general, is how much more people in the community and people that have no connection to science and medicine are paying attention to what we are saying. And this has to be one of the things that we learn from coronavirus is that as scientists, as clinicians, as healthcare professionals, as public health professionals, We really need to evolve and scale up how we communicate to diverse audiences to make sure that the points we want to make are what is actually being heard. And we're not talking to each other. We're talking to people in our community. So we really have to understand how to do that. And when we don't do it well, things like Verona come to exist.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Anish. I think that one of the things that we've seen is the public's unwavering, sudden consumption of science information and how if we're not ready with science facts and science information, that it can be filled with whatever else is out there. And so we have to be good stewards of the science. And and that means sharing information rapidly, but also being really careful to explain exactly what it means.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100% agree. Lauren, and that's why things like these podcasts become really helpful because we can discuss things in a way that hopefully people can really engage with us and ask us good questions of the data that we're seeing and the ideas that we're talking about so that we all move forward together, not just scientists and clinicians separate from the rest of us. So Lauren, you asked this wonderful question about do co-infections matter? And do they matter clinically? And the answer is yes. We see co-infections of different types of germs and bugs and pathogens all the time. But specifically to what we're talking about today, we do see patients who have respiratory viruses, multiple ones, sometimes at the same time. And I can think of multiple examples every year where I see a patient with flu, maybe RSV or flu and metanumavirus. and then this occurs with other viruses as well. We see patients that come in with parainfluenza in one of the older, not so dangerous coronaviruses. And even with COVID-19, we have seen patients come in with COVID-19 and other respiratory viruses, whether it be RSV, rhinovirus, influenza, and so we definitely see them. And understanding that patients have multiple viruses causing active infections is actually important for us clinicians. It affects what we do in a few ways. We know that patients that have multiple viruses may be, not always, but maybe a little higher risk for worsening symptoms, worsening respiratory tract or lung disease. So we have to monitor for that. There's also different ways that we treat things. So obviously now with COVID-19, we have some therapies that we use to treat. For influenza, we have some therapies to treat. Most of our other respiratory viruses, we don't have really great therapies. So we monitor patients. We try to give them appropriate supportive care. But when we have viruses that can be treated, we want to be very specific about how we treat them. So how we treat flu is a little different than how we treat. COVID-19. And if they have both, we have to combine or adjust our course so that we're treating both effectively. And in doing so, understanding what a patient has, so making very specific diagnoses, and then coming up with specific treatment plans when they have multiple infections really helps us deliver personalized care to our patient and give them the best outcome possible to get over these infections.
0: Thank you. That's so helpful. When we think about co-infections, one of the questions that has come up repeatedly is, do our tests still work? And I think that's not just for co-infections of flu and COVID, but also how coronavirus itself is changing, how SARS-CoV-2 is changing with the variants. So when we have patients like this, will our tests continue to work?
1: So the question about uh, making these diagnoses of which virus is affecting a patient. And as the evolution or mutation of the virus, as Jared talked about earlier, affecting our diagnostic test is a really important area. We have seen at times when a virus changes, certain tests don't work very well. But the wonderful thing that we've seen in the decade leading up to the COVID pandemic and also really accelerated development during the COVID pandemic is using really novel techniques, new techniques to make diagnoses of viruses that can continue to work despite seeing variants, besides seeing mutations. And so a lot of the diagnostic tests that we have now can find the virus, even as it changes it into new variants, though it has to be tested and looked at every time. And one of the also really interesting things that we are seeing is in the old days, we could only test for one sort of germ at a time. Now we have these newer tests that sometimes can look at a panel or a bunch of different viruses at the same time. So if someone comes in with a pneumonia-like syndrome, we can test for all the different pathogens or most of the pathogens, most of the germs that would cause pneumonia And so give the patient a specific diagnosis and the really good test hold up as the germ itself mutates and changes over time so that regardless of those changes, we're still able to identify for the patient and their family what germ they have.
0: On a related note, do you think we'll see the opportunity to get a single vaccine for multiple respiratory viruses coming up in the future?
1: Oh, that's a wonderful question. The goal of creating vaccines that will cover lots of uh, viruses, I think is really important. But it goes back to a point that Jared talked about earlier. These viruses are, are similar in many ways. They're made up of this genetic material, nucleic acids. But when we look at them more closely, as Jared mentioned, they're very different on that molecular level. And not only they're nucleic acids, the genetic makeup, but the types of proteins and how those proteins look, which are really important for how our immune system responds to them and also how we design vaccines. And so I think it's really important for us to keep going down the pathway of creating universal influenza vaccines or universal coronavirus vaccines. However, there are so many different viruses out there that I don't think we'll find one that will cover multiple species or multiple families of viruses. We really have to develop for each one of those species specific vaccines. So I'd love to hear what Jared got to, to say about this.
2: Yeah. Thanks. And you jump in there. So one of the challenges with making flu vaccines is that it evolves extremely fast, it has a very high mutation rate. And so that's why you have to have a, a new vaccine every year. There are other things that go on that, like vaccines don't create lifelong immunity for flu and the lifespan of the the COVID vaccines, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines. But the one good thing is that the virus mutates slower than flu. So you have to marry those two things together. What is the mutation rate? What are the targets of neutralization? Can you just target one piece of of the virus with antibodies and make it a simple vaccine? Or do you have to target a number of different things? So the mutation rate is, is going to be a major player and that's been the greatest challenge with the flu vaccine every year and for a universal flu vaccine. People are pioneering, uh, new research in evolutionary models, um, including us at APL and being able to try to predict what the virus is going to be for the next year, next two years, next five years in order to make better vaccines. And the other thing about that is also being able to create vaccine delivery systems that are able to increase your immune response. You know, up until SARS-CoV-2, we were using pretty old technologies. And so now with this pandemic, it's really opened the doors to other modalities, different types of testing, more rapid understanding of what the vaccine can do, faster clinical trials. Not that faster is always better. But being able to look at different modalities of vaccine, different ways to increase immune responses, including things called adjuvants, which upset your immune system so you're able to develop a, a stronger response, and then looking for things that make a more robust immune response that lasts for a longer time, you know, so you don't have to get vaccinated every year or every two years. And that's also requires some basic research in immunology to understand the true factors that go into immune response to vaccines. All those things together are really uh, complicated, but those are things that need to be done in order to to develop a stronger uh, vaccine, let's say, portfolio to attack these types of uh, pathogens.
0: On that comment about the mutation rate, I think we have heard a lot about the fast mutation rate of flu repeatedly in the conversations around universal flu vaccination development. It feels like this SARS-CoV-2, this coronavirus, has a pretty fast mutation rate. Is that true of all coronaviruses, or is it just that we're feeling like it has a fast mutation rate because we're hearing about every single variant that pops up in our newly strengthened surveillance system?
2: That's a really, really good question. And I'm not sure that there's a 100% answer for that. One of the factors that goes into that is that flu Evolves every year because of a high error rate and also because it tends to target vulnerable populations. And um, it also meets with a vaccine every single year that it has to get around. Coronavirus seems to be in the lab, have a slightly lower mutation rate, but in the population, it seems to be evolving quite fast because it keeps hitting naive populations. And so it's able to have this large area of evolutionary playground where it can try different things out. Different variants can emerge within a single individual. They're able to then find a naive person, can it get around the vaccine, and you can have breakthrough, things of that nature. So the true mutation rate of coronavirus, we have a good idea what it is, but the true understanding of what it is at a steady state is not going to be known until there's an immune. Um, there's a population that's immune, where there's herd immunity, and then we'll understand better what what it's able to do. And it won't always be static. Mutations within the the genome might cause it to mutate faster. So it it could become a feedback loop there.
1: Jared, uh, uh, let me jump in and, and add an additional factor that might be influencing the way that we think about this. And feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think one of the additional components of why we feel like coronavirus is evolving or creating more mutations and adapting faster is the overall numbers. We just have so many more cases of coronavirus every month than we ever have had with influenza, at least in our lifetime. And that allows for these rare events to seem like they're bigger because there's far, far more numbers of patients with that infection. And far more opportunity for the virus to adapt. That's why getting these vaccines and getting these prevention measures becomes so important because if we drop the number down significantly, these type of new developments will become, hopefully, less frequent.
2: No, that's a great point, Anish. And, and that's the other thing to circle back to what Lauren mentioned is, we're sequencing a lot more samples than ever before. Like I said before, 7 million samples, You know, 7 million sequences being uploaded, not just being sequenced, but being uploaded over two and some year period is incredible. It's more than the flu samples over 20 years. So to have that amount of information might make it seem like there's all this mutation, might make it seem like there's all these variants. But it's such a deluge of information that we're able to dig through that we're able to to see that many more variants emerging.
0: So moving forward from where we are right now, this conversation around getting everyone vaccinated, which is so important to get out of this pandemic phase that we're in, and and also thinking about how we maintain surveillance activities moving forward. We've heard a lot of talk about COVID potentially becoming endemic. And you know, we deal with respiratory viruses like flu every year. We deal with a lot of viruses all over the globe that potentially are considered endemic in certain areas. A lot of the conversation makes it seem like endemic is no big deal and it's just something we'll live with and move on. But endemic doesn't just always mean that we accept it and we deal with it. We manage some pretty dangerous endemic pathogens all across the globe. Will this be the same?
2: I'll jump in first there. When we say endemic, like you said, a lot of people take that as it's going to be less bad (laughs) than it currently is. And every year, there are large dengue outbreaks in South America, Africa. And these kill a lot of people every single year. And that virus is endemic. It doesn't make it less worse. And so that's the concern. Are we just going to be living with every year there is a massive outbreak of COVID and it's just here and lots of people are going to die every year? Or is it that it's going to become something we can manage it still causes a lot of problems. Like flu, you know, has a, has a mortality rate of up to 36,000, 40,000 people a year uh, in a bad year. And that's a lot of people. And sometimes that gets overlooked because it's called just flu season. And so that's what we wanna avoid. And I think we wanna keep pushing that communication that yes, this is something that will happen. This is something that might be here to stay unless we take extreme measures. And obviously, you can hope that the virus will be uh, attenuated and not cause such severe outcomes, but there's no guarantee that that'll happen once the virus is truly endemic in the United States.
1: Yeah, those are wonderful points, Jared. I have the same concern that that you guys have both expressed that we're all banking on this becoming endemic and endemic meaning less impactful. Hopefully that's true if it becomes endemic, that we end up with a pathogen or a virus that's less pathogenic or less harmful to each one of us and therefore less impactful to our community, but also endemic events can lead to severe disease and extinction in uh, previous history of other species. And so I think we, we need to stay focused on really preventing infections and we here at Netech, we talk a lot about really being prepared to prevent every pathogen and any pathogen. And that's what we need to do as sort of a global community is really use COVID as broadening our resources to prevent infections. But specifically, when we're talking about COVID, Jared had mentioned this wonderful uh, science of improving our vaccine reliability, our ability to deliver vaccines. But that's part of what we need to do is actually deliver those vaccines. So we focus so much of getting the vaccines in the countries where they're being developed, but there's still transmission of COVID and for decades of influenza in areas that don't have access to vaccines. And more importantly, fundamental healthcare, getting really good public health and healthcare across the world that includes delivering vaccines, would really be the primary thing that will bring down the impact of COVID-19, bring down the impact of influenza, and bring down so many other infections that get transmitted. If we can just elevate the level of public health and healthcare delivery across the country and across the world, we'll really see more dramatic impacts than this potential conversion to making it in-depth.
0: Do you think there's also a role for non-pharmaceutical interventions? So just thinking about the reduction in the number of flu cases globally that we've seen in the last few years, is there an opportunity to leverage some of what we've learned in COVID about reducing disease transmission? Maybe some of these interventions are on the more restrictive side that we don't need to implement on the day-to-day. But are there some lessons that we've learned here that we can keep these interventions going along to improve our overall respiratory virus hygiene, so to speak.
1: So Lauren, I think you're bringing up a great point that we focus a lot in what we talk about pharmaceutical interventions or therapeutic interventions, but a lot of what has protected us over the last century and has actually really protected us during COVID-19 are non-pharmacologic interventions which can be paired with pharmacologic interventions, but really are the bedrock of preventing infectious diseases. And so I think we've learned a lot in COVID about how crowding and population migrations, how climate change, all of these things affect the spread of infection around the world. And then even in more local environments, having the ability to have good nutrition, to have masks that work, to have... Ventilation, all these sort of things really help us bring down the impact of things like COVID 19.
0: One last question on the science side. The speed of science has just been absolutely incredible. And I think in some ways you can almost think about that as a non pharmaceutical intervention because we're gaining so much information every day about COVID 19 and how we deal with these variants, how we discover these variants, how we Understand how the virus spreads in populations, how co infection is working in our health populations. How can we leverage some of this incredibly fast, efficient, and good science to improve how we understand respiratory viruses more broadly?
2: That's a really good question. I, I think it'll give a, a more global view of what these pathogens are and what they're capable of. I think that being able to accumulate huge amounts of information will be useful for data science, bioinformatics science, and prediction analytics, to look at the way that you can build parameters or rules of how a virus will emerge. And also being able to develop a more global net of surveillance and be able to say, these are factors that when you have them, you have a likelihood of an emergent event, a new virus jumping from a species or uh, having an outbreak on a college campus whatever your area of of interest might be. And the other side of it is being able to take all of the information that you get and apply it against different problem sets. You know, we talked about vaccines. I think that obviously that's something very important because it's human nature to want to get a shot and all the problems go away. You know, the pharmaceutical inventions, interventions, as we just discussed. But the other thing is being able to take a step back and look at where investment was made in the research and where the biggest impact was made from out of that research will be really useful across a number of different pathogens. There were tried and true methods for things like flu, RSV, investment in those areas were pretty specific. But now understanding that we had a pandemic that seemed to outwit all of the (laughs) all of the tried and true methods and we needed to bring to bear some really novel ideas to to even get it to heal a little bit. It's you know, it's still around, it's still a problem. It's not gone away. But to even get it to heal a little bit has really shown that we need to expand our thought processes and, and at different areas for things like flu, different things like Ebola, anything that can have an emergent outbreak and be able to leverage those new target points that we've identified through through the pandemic will really bring to bear some some new technologies and big breakthroughs in things that have been moving forward, but maybe not at the accelerated pace that we saw with COVID science and surveillance.
1: Yeah, Derek. just to follow up on those great points, I think science and scientific data have got to lead the way and have led us to all the important breakthroughs and interventions and reduction of harm that we've seen in COVID. Organizations like ours, like Tech, is very much dependent upon the scientific data to understand what we need to go out and teach about, what we need to train about, what we have to prepare healthcare systems and healthcare providers for. So what I really hope is that we use this example of this accelerated pace of science, this accelerated discovery that Jared's just been talking about for COVID, for us to all really understand how impactful investment in science and specifically investments in scientists in allowing them and giving them the platform to do the work and explore these novel ideas, how impactful that is to all of us. Whether there's a pandemic going on or not, human health is gonna be growingly dependent upon the data that we get from these scientists. We need to invest in them, we need to nurture them, and that we can hear more from people like Jared Evans as we move forward.
0: I think that's the perfect note to end on. The science that we've built around COVID-19 and continue to build and the evidence base that just continues to grow is incredible. And everything we've learned, I think, will continue to impact what happens to our respiratory virus season. And I think this has been an incredible discussion. I really appreciate you both being here. Thank you so much for joining us today to discuss flu and the future of respiratory virus season. We have a lot to look forward to on the science side. And I think if we can be good messengers of that vaccine message to our broader communities and the global population and make sure we get that incredible science into the hands of people who can get vaccines across the planet, we'll be quicker out of this pandemic and better for it. So thank you both so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate your time. Well, as we've come to assume is going to happen during this pandemic, science is outpacing all of us. And so we're back with a little addendum to this podcast. Since the recording of the podcast, we actually had a real recombination event of Delta and Omicron. So we wanted to bring you up to speed on what that looks like. So thanks again to my guests, Anish and Jared for joining us back here. And let's talk a little bit about what happened here. So, Jared, can you tell us a little bit about what happened here versus what happened with the last event, and what's the difference between the contamination issue and this new recombination event?
2: Recombination is when two very similar genomes are able to swap pieces, and that was what was initially identified by the group in Cyprus. But upon looking at it, the sequences there were fifty-two of them. Looking at those sequences we realized there was a lot of homogeneity and they, were, they looked very, very similar. And that's uncommon for this virus. You always find small changes across the genome. It's a relatively big genome for an RNA virus. And upon looking at the raw data, they saw that there was a lot of low coverage reads, meaning there wasn't a lot of information. And so the analysis was pulling out things that looked right, as it were other differences one is the analysis of the genomic data was performed by the lab that did the sequencing this isn't a problem but it usually is where there's um data that is uh well they dig into it a little bit deeper and then the third problem is usually when you find a variant of a virus in a clinical sample you grow that virus out and you're able to then get a viral sample or virus stock that you could then resequence And validate that the sequences you were getting from the clinical sample were recapitulated in the actual virus that you grew out. That was not done in the original samples, but it was done uh, with the newer samples that were uploaded by France and the UK groups.
0: So basically, in the last event, it was a lab analyzing their own data and possibly missing the fact that they had this contamination when they were when they were showing it as a recombination event. Whereas here, this was an actual recombination event that people outside of the lab were digging into these sequences on the repository, doing their own analysis and catching it.
2: That's exactly right. The data was uploaded to public repositories by the originating laboratories. And they had uploaded the genomic sequence to get it out as fast as possible and hope that people would look at it like the first group did. And they were also validating in their own lab whether they could grow the virus out of the clinical samples, or they were looking at other sequences to see if they could see this across more and more samples. And while they were validating their own data, an independent investigator in Washington DC named Scott Nguyen, he found some recombinants or evidence of recombination in samples that were produced by the, the French group. and. That was then followed up with publications from the French group that they were able to grow the virus out of the samples and validating their own data.
0: That's interesting. So, why is growing the virus out of the samples so important in this process?
2: So, I'm not going to get into the Cox postulates or or anything like that. But one thing that you want to be able to do is validate the clinical samples that harbor a genomic sequence for a pathogen, in this case, SARS CoV 2, with an actual virus that you can grow out of that sample. It's not always possible to grow the virus out for different reasons, you know, low levels of virus or the sample got too warm and then too cold freeze thaws can kill the virus. But in this case, what they really wanted to do was make sure that the clinical sample and the virus that you could grow out of it had the same sequences. And it's important because when you sequence things, as we said earlier, the sequencing is so powerful that it can pick up very, very small amounts of contamination or other pieces of data. If that amount of information is there and you're computationally reassembling the the genomic data into that sequence, the physical manifestation of, of nucleic acids, you then run the risk of having two different pieces of data. So in this case, if you can grow the virus out, sequence that, it recapitulates the clinical
0: samples that you've sequenced. Can anyone grow virus or is this a very specific skill set that we're talking about?
2: It's a good question. You have to have a skill set. You have to have a a laboratory that's enabled for this. These people are experts in this and, you know, they're growing them under very controlled conditions. They produce small amounts just to validate and um, demonstrate that the virus that was in the sample that they see by sequencing is the virus that they're seeing in the sample. So... They're under very controlled conditions. This is something that is common practice in virology and epidemiology. So it's it's nothing to be worried about on that end.
0: Do you think we'll see more events like these, these recombination events?
2: Uh, that's hard to say. I think that the reason we're seeing these is because there was so much Delta and so much Omicron circulating at the same time. Previously, what happened is what's very common in, in viruses, there's a virus that's circulating, a new one shows up on the scene and just replaces it. It just outcompetes it. In this case, they both were able to maintain circulation for a certain period of time that enabled these recombination events to happen. And also the other thing is people are really looking for these now and they're very nervous about vaccine coverages and other types of clinical manifestations. And actually, you know, the, the Deltacron name is is not really popular in the virology field, and the genomics field. And it's just a very simple way that the, the media discussed it or described it. We'll probably see more of these sequences as more and more sequences from that time period emerge where Delta and Omicron were both circulating very heavily. But we'll start to see it diminish a little bit as Omicron replaces Delta.
0: So, Anish, what does this mean for vaccines?
1: Well, Lauren, as we've all seen, this pandemic continues to evolve. Specifically, SARS-CoV-2 continues to evolve. And with each one of these changes, we really need to understand how the change in virus affects the clinical conditions for patients, how effective our therapies will be, and importantly, if there's any change in the effectiveness of our vaccines. To date, we don't see any evidence that the new sequences, the new virus that we've seen is going to make a significant impact to the vaccines or the therapeutics, but we will learn more in the coming weeks and as we see more sequences come about.
2: Yeah, and that, that's one really good point. The Omicron spike is maintained in all of the recombination or recombinant viruses. And so if a vaccine is protective against the Omicron variant, it should be protective against all of these variants as well.
0: That's great to hear. All the more reason to get vaccinated. So should we be worried about these recombination events or is this something that we're just gonna continue to see and we have to contextualize it within the rest of the pandemic?
2: I think the take home is, these are something to keep an eye on, but due to their rare events, they're not something to be overwhelmed or terribly frightened by. And the protection of the vaccine and the coverage of the vaccine that are available should protect people from these particular events. We do want to be aware of anything new arising. So maybe we'll have to do another podcast in another week.
0: We hope not. (laughs) Jared Anish, thanks so much for joining me again. Hopefully this is the last time we have to come back together to talk about Deltacron, but appreciate you coming back to keep us up to date.
1: It's uh, always a pleasure to be on with this distinguished crowd. Thank you, Lauren. This
2: was great. A lot of fun.
0: For those of you listening at home, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode on Rona, and the future of the respiratory virus season. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics, from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment, and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at org. Or you can find us on the web at kneetech.org slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find out more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted.
1: You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from Neetech, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at netech.org.